When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, I'm Megan Teets, and this is Sorta Awesome. Welcome to the show that is all about uncovering the awesome in the everyday. Each week, my co-hosts and I give our favorite tips share our best stories, and confide our true confessions as we invite you to join us in the pursuit of awesome. This is episode 87 of the show, and this week is a little bit of a departure from our regularly scheduled Sort of Awesome programming. As many of you awesomes who are listening right now know, last fall I traveled to Lebanon to meet with Syrian families living there after fleeing the devastation of the civil war in their country. And so, like many people in the U.S. and around the world, when news broke last Friday of President Trump's executive order that would suspend our country's refugee program for 120 days, I was pretty shaken up. So I grabbed my dear friend and one of the most news-savvy people I know, Kelly Gordon, and we went to work on putting together this episode to process some of this information and just sort of sort through it all together. We're going to get to all of that in just a minute, but first, let's go ahead and start this show the way we always do with our Awesome of the Week. Hi, Kelly. Hey, Megan. Hey, Awesomes. I have such a funny to me awesome for you guys of the week, but it really truly is my awesome of the week, almost my awesome of the month or season, the winter. It is a playlist on Pandora, okay? And we will share it in the Hangout group. We will put it in the newsletter in the show notes that if you want to go listen to this, but I have to tell you the story of how I found it, okay? Okay. So one of the stations that I love on Pandora, and this is not one that I created, it's just one of their pre-made stations, it's just smooth jazz. Okay. Right? I've mentioned that before. <laughs> yes, it's my right. total nerd thing. On that station, every once in a while, there will be a song that is just guitar. I love acoustic guitar. It just pulls at everything within me. It makes me feel so happy and so relaxed and so warm. It is truly like Huga to me, right? Right. Music is a huge part of Huga. Mm-hmm. And there is no more Huga instrument to me than guitar. Okay. So one time a song came on and I just thought, oh my word, this is so beautiful. And so I went over to give it the thumbs up. And then I thought, I'm going to create a new station off of this song because I like it so much. Maybe Pandora will keep finding songs that are in this genre that will make me happy and make me feel warm and keep me motivated and like like being inside even yes. this winter. So it created the station. And here's the funny thing. It turns out to be an entire station of Hawaiian guitar music. <laughs> I can dig it. I like that. Okay. It doesn't even really sound Hawaiian that much to me, you guys. Like, that's the thing. It's not ukulele. Every once in a while, there'll be a song where you'll go, oh, no. Like, I can hear it now. Right. But for the most part, if you did not know that this station is called A Ku'u Morning Dew Radio, <laughs> right? most of the song titles I cannot tell you because they're so Hawaiian. Yeah. There are so many A's and E's in there. 
Like, I, I just can't. The easiest ones are like, Anuhani's song. Uh-huh. You know, things that are pretty easy. Kalahani Kai. They're so beautiful, though, you guys. So it is this warm music. And because I had the great privilege of traveling to Hawaii just a few months ago, I learned because we went to the Polynesian Cultural Center there, that's on Oahu, I highly recommend it, that ukulele and guitar are actually, they're very, very common, a big part of the Hawaiian culture. So that sound that I think most of us in the mainland and other parts of the world associate with Hawaiian music, that very ukulele, you know, picky sort of sound, that's part of it. But really, there's a huge plethora of apparently Hawaiian guitar players who just play beautiful acoustic guitar. So this has been my new station. It is on all the time. It's called, and well, again, we'll put the link in okay. the show notes. That way, if you want to go find it, it's called A Ku'u Morning Dew Radio. And it's all the most Hugo music that I can imagine. Okay. Well, my awesome of the week this week is also for your earbuds. It's a podcast, so just no one be surprised. I cannot <laughs> stop with podcast recommendations. This is another one from Gimlet Media, Kelly. I mean, I feel like at this point, we should be getting residual checks from Gimlet as much as we recommend <laughs> their podcasts on here. But this is a fairly new one, and it's called Twice Removed. It looks at genealogy, our family line. So the idea Twice Removed is kind of like, oh, she's my cousin, Twice Removed. Um, so what they do, the host of the show is a man named A.J. Jacobs. You may have heard of him. He's a fairly well-known American author and journalist and speaker. He's the host, and he has a guest each week. And what they do is just dive into that guest's history, their lineage, not just like their grandparents, although that's often a starting point, but then going back many, many generations and looking at, you know, how people are connected by marriage and by blood and all of these things. Now, I have to tell you all, I am honestly not that much into genealogy stuff. I know that's a hot thing right now. We even have a sort of genealogical spinoff group, a spinoff of the Mm -hmm. Hangout group for people that really like to talk about that stuff. It's generally not me. Now, I'd like to talk about my own family history, (laughs) which a lot of people do. In fact, Somebody in my family, from my father's side, so my maiden name is Harris, but my paternal grandmother's maiden name was McFarland. One of the McFarlands was so into our family history. This was back in the early 90s. She created a whole book called The McFarland Family History, and it's an actual bound copy. Each of my siblings, we all have one. And it traces our heritage back to the Scottish Presbyterians who came here in the 1700s. And wow. it traces our family through American history. So that part to me is really fascinating. But when it comes to listening to other people's family histories, eh, I could take it really. But the way they set it up on Twice Removed is really fascinating. They really do pull out these really interesting stories. And you know what, Kelly? It kind of turns out to be a history lesson along the way because you're hearing these little segments of history from around the world. And I don't know. It really affirms my belief that everything is meaningful and we're all connected. And I have to tell you, if you need one to start with, just to check it out, I highly, highly recommend, I think it's just their third episode. It features Nazanin Rasvanjani. She is the creative director at Gimlet. If her name sounds familiar to you, it's because she is also the wife of Alex Bloomberg, the CEO of Gimlet. She's featured pretty regularly on Startup, which Mm -hmm. is the Gimlet podcast that traces the beginning of Gimlet Media. So uh, AJ Jacobs brings in Nazanin, 
she is Iranian by birth. In fact, was born in Iran. And so it starts, even just if you just listen to the first 20 minutes, it really tells this exciting and harrowing story of her parents making the decision to leave um, Iran when the revolution happened there. And oh, I forgot to tell you, a major component of the show is each episode features a mystery guest that is somehow related to the main guest of the show. And so at the end, there's this big reveal with the main guest and then the mystery guest. And so far, every time they've brought a mystery guest in, it's somebody who has to do with the guest's actual life right now in the present. So there's always this really big connection of like, we're all connected in all of these amazing ways. Well, the reveal of the mystery guest on Nazanin's episode is just so beautiful and so powerful. So I highly recommend Gimlet's Twice Removed. Oh, my word. You have really got me like, I want to go listen right now. I want to go hear what it is. That sounds really, really fun. Yeah, it's good stuff. Check it out. See if it is one that you want to add to your podcast app. Okay, so I'm going to take an actual deep breath right now. (laughs) (laughs) A literal one. (laughs) So Kelly, um, you and I, both ENFPs, well-established fact for the awesome community. So you and I think probably are both really tempted to give lots of disclaimers right now Mm -hmm. about why we, a show that generally tries to just kind of take care of our awesome community with supplying them with as much awesome as we can find so that each of you feel prepared to kind of take on the good stuff and the bad stuff of life. And so like, that's what our show usually does. And right now, I just want to give a lot of disclaimers, but I'm going to try not to do that (laughs) about why we're talking about something as serious as refugee issues on Sort of Awesome this week. But here's what you do need to know about why we're doing this episode. It should be no surprise to any of you that when it comes to refugees, your girl has no chill. I mean, I care a whole bunch about refugees in general and Syrians in specific. And I mean, how could I not? Just a few months ago, I was standing in the dirt of the Bekaa Valley in Lebanon, where millions of Syrians are taking refuge right now. I was, you know, sitting on concrete floors of these two-room tents that many of these families have lived in and called their home for like four or more years at this point. Um, When we left the tented settlements, the kids were, you know, hanging on my arms and hugging me, kissing me on the cheek. They were saying to me in English, I love you, I love you. Um, In Arabic, they were saying, come back and see us. So, okay. And so, yes, on the one hand, I definitely believe in staying in your lane and doing what you do and doing it well. But I kind of think, too, that when I went to Lebanon and came back to talk about the Syrian refugee crisis, which if you haven't heard my coverage of it, is in the podcast feed. It's a three-part series that you can check out called A Refuge for Refugees. So when I went on that trip, I think I kind of went ahead and expanded our lane a little bit here on Sorta Awesome. So I have grappled with and thought about if and how we should cover this moment in time on the show. And I came to this realization, Kelly, that a long, long time after Sorta Awesome has ended, when most people have forgotten my name and our little podcast that we put together, I... Megan Teets, I still have to live with myself and my choices. And I still have to know that I did the best job that I could do as a human being on this planet during this time. So what I can tell you all, I promise that there is going to be no hysteria. No one's going to shout over one another. There's not going to be any fake news. (laughs) 
I, at the beginning of this week, I opened up my private message inboxes to the awesomes. I asked you guys to send me your commentary, send me your questions. Now, we are working with about an hour long program here. So there's really only so much that we can cover, but we're going to try to cover as much of the discussion as we can that your questions have prompted for us. So I've got my trusty Diet Coke here. I put on some red lipstick. (laughs) I've got one of my closest friends who also happens to be pretty brilliant. And we are just going to do this. So Kelly, um, one of the things that is so important as we're having these conversations with ourselves and with our family and friends is to be accurate in the words that we're using. That's so pivotal, really. I mean, in language, I think it's pivotal, but especially right now, it's so important that we're all on the same page with the actual terminology we're using. So I was wondering if you could kind of just start us out by defining what are some of the major terms that we're hearing in these discussions and what do each of them actually mean? Right. And I think this is so important. And it's actually one of the reasons why I went into journalism in the first place was because we all have to be talking about the same thing. We all have to know what the terms mean to be able to have a fruitful discussion where we can truly understand each other. So here are the three terms that I have seen in the media when we're talking about people and this executive order that President Trump issued. It is refugee, of course, migrant and immigrant. So let's break those down. Migrant is the broadest term, especially the way it's used today. It really refers to anybody who is in the process of relocating from one country or place to another country or place. And the reason why they could be relocating is for any number of reasons, to find work, to get an education, just to better themselves. So it's that really broad term for someone who is leaving someplace and going to another place. Taking it in one step further is an immigrant. Immigrants are migrants who intend to settle into their new location. They don't intend to go home. They say, this is where we're going to stay. We're not just coming to work and then leave or to work to better ourselves. We're actually coming to say, we want a new country. We want a new place to live. So those could be for the same reasons. They might be moving partly because of work, education, and then just decide to stay to better themselves. But they're actually intending to settle into their new home. Now, further in are refugees. Okay, and that's really what we're going to be talking about today. Refugees are people who have been forced to flee their homes because of the threat of persecution or armed conflict. You know, the powers that be are not protecting them. That's the real key. An immigrant is choosing to leave. A refugee has no choice. Right. Yes. They are being forced to flee by, for all intents and purposes. They cannot stay in their home. So a refugee has left one place because they have to. Yes. To move to another. Now, what they do after they've left is another thing. Are they going to seek to become an immigrant and to settle into a new country? Are they saying, no, I would actually like to go home someday. I'm technically just going to be a migrant. But either way, they have not been given a choice. They have to leave their country or else they will usually die. That's right. That's exactly right. In fact, to be considered a refugee, they, especially by the UN, and we'll talk in just a minute about the UN and their role in the refugee process, but the UN has five classifications mm-hmm. for refugee, Kelly, and what were those five? Right. Yeah, there's five categories, race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group. So those are People to be a refugee have to fit into one of those categories as defined by the UN. Okay, that's right. So those are the terms that we're working with. And as Kelly really highlighted, when it comes to somebody um, 
declaring themselves to be a refugee, it is because they have found themselves in a situation that's literally life or death. And so that is what sets the refugee classification kind of apart from these other classifications of people going into different countries from where they were born. So let's talk a little bit specifically about this executive order and why many people who have gotten upset about it, who are angry or confused about it, are specifically looking at the refugee component of the executive order that was issued by President Trump on January 27th. So why is there so much pushback on this? And um, kind of like, what what do we need to know about the refugee program that was already in place? That's some of the stuff that we're going to talk about in this next part. So President Trump's executive order included a, first of all, a 90-day ban on all citizens from seven Muslim-majority countries. Those seven countries were not just chosen at random. They were lifted from a bill that President Obama signed in 2015. This bill was originally introduced by Republican lawmakers. There were some Democrats who supported it as well. And that legislation that came out during the Obama administration, that grew out of concerns about citizens from countries where... ISIS, other jihadist groups were had, had a lot of activity. Um, and then so in, people coming into the United States who had recently been in one of those countries. And those countries are Iran, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, Somalia, the Sudan, and Libya. So those are the countries that were really identified in here. Now, the order, the executive order also suspends the admission of Syrians, including Syrian refugees, indefinitely. So right. whereas we had this 90-day pause on entry into the U.S. for those other six countries, for Syrians specifically, it's indefinite. There's an open time frame there. Interestingly, it also suspends the entire refugee program for 120 days. And this, it even went so far as to apply to people who have already been through the whole process that we're about to talk to you about, the whole vetting process, and we're preparing to resettle here in the US. That's why you over the weekend, you may have heard stories of families being turned away literally at the airport when they had flown into the US and were arriving here for their um, next steps in being resettled in the United States. And so the purpose of the executive order is to halt the programs to pause them in order to kind of reevaluate, examine the vetting process, uh, the visa waiver process, all of our refugee resettlement policies, looking at what's happening and, and seeing and identifying, are there holes in the system? Are there places where criminal activity could be happening? Are there places where terrorists could slip into our country through these processes? So it is a temporary ban. It's not permanent. The only part that is the probably the part that's the biggest question mark is the Syrian component, because that is the part that at, at this point, as we record on February 2nd, is still indefinite. So, whew, Kelly, <laughs> I guess the yes. next question that comes up, because these countries that were identified, they're all Muslim majority countries. So the question has arisen, is this technically a Muslim ban? Well, the short answer is no, it's not a Muslim ban. Um, there has been, I would say, rightful critique about, you know, that hashtag because it is misleading. It is not banning all Muslims from ever coming into the U.S. Other people, other immigrants, again, as we discussed, um, who may be Muslim could come in. So that's the, the short answer. Um, the reason that it has gotten that sort of a reputation or flack is because of the seven countries that you just said, Megan, they are Muslim majority countries. Also in the executive order, 
there was verbiage that said that minority religions from countries would be given priority or preferential treatment. But of course, since they're Muslim majority countries, that would be anybody who is not Muslim who's getting in. So that, again, kind of gives the impression that we are not wanting Muslims to even try to come. And of course, President Trump's own verbiage, um, to be fair, during the candidacy as he was running for president, um, he did say he would like to establish a Muslim ban. And so that still echoes in many people's heads and it echoes around the world. So as much as the administration is saying, you know, this isn't a Muslim ban, and they are correct, it is not a Muslim ban. It's easy to say, well, it feels like it because of other things that you've said, because of the way this is worded, saying that preferential treatment will be given to minority religions, and because the seven countries that are listed are Muslim majority. Um, A lot of people have taken it to feel like it's a Muslim ban. Yes, that's right. So just to clarify that, because again, that is a big part of the pushback. And so again, this is where really and truly words and accuracy are so important. Because if you try to um, speak to somebody who approves, who has a, a favorable feeling about this executive order, and you try to speak to them and say, well, I think it creates a Muslim ban, they're going to say, but if you look at it, if you look at what it's actually saying, it's not. And so this is where we kind of start to get into these arguments back and forth. Because then like you say, uh, Kelly, people are like, but remember when he was um, campaigning, and he said these things. And so right. But so in all technicality, it is not. There are still plenty of countries where people who are practicing Muslims may immigrate into our country. So um, a great deal of the pushback about the executive order also has to do with what President Trump has said he wants to institute, and that is this process that he's calling extreme vetting of people who are coming into our country as refugees. And I think that a lot of people and myself included, just don't even really know what this, the, the already in place vetting process looks like. Listen, I really did not know until this week what the vetting process has looked like to this point. So here's some things that we found out. First of all, let's talk about statistically looking at the numbers, looking at precedent, looking at history. Have any people who have come into this country as a refugee, have they ever caused any kind of violent attack or murder? Well, to answer that, I found this fantastic policy paper from the Cato Institute. Now, if you're not familiar with the Cato Institute, that it is a DC think tank that's technically libertarian. It's pretty right-leaning because one of the co-founders is one of the Koch brothers. If Mm -hmm. you're not familiar with the Koch brothers, they're the billionaire industrialists, Charles and David Koch. They fund a lot of conservative and Republican causes and and think tanks like the Cato Institute. So a right-leaning libertarian group put together this policy paper called Terrorism and Immigration, a Risk Analysis Policy Paper. Kelly, start us off with some of the interesting statistics that we found as we looked at this paper from them. Right. You know, this is what it says, is that in 1980, the Refugee Act was signed into law. So there have been, since that time, about 3 million refugees admitted into the U.S. And here's the bottom line from the Cato Institute, is that not a single one has ever taken a single American life in a terrorist attack. Right. So one of their statistical figures is that the odds of an American being killed by a refugee turned terrorist are about one in 3.64 billion per year. That's right. Okay. Yes. So if we're going to go back and I believe that they released this, is it last year or two years ago now? 
this report the came policy out. Policy paper was in 2015. Right. Okay. So the, you know we're working on 2015 statistics, people. Yes. <laughs> um, so some other statistics from that year. If you live in the U.S., you have a one in 157,300 chance of dying by falling down stairs. Yes. That's that's crazy, but it's it's lower. It's <laughs> much much lower. Turn terrorist. Yes. Um, you have a chance of one in 54,000 of just dying while walking. That's right. If you're walking right now while you're listening to our podcast, please be careful. <laughs> right. Yes. One in 54,000. We're just saying this to say perspective, right? Yes. They've been studying it for 41 years yeah. that you have that sort of a chance of being killed on the U.S. soil by an act that was perpetrated by a foreign-born terrorist, someone who came as a refugee to our country and then turned terrorist. Basically, facts do not support the fact that refugees are a threat to Americans on our soil. Right, that's true. Now, another component, though, that the policy paper looked at is looking at the visa program that other people who are foreign nationals are in our country on various kinds of visas. And there are a lot of different kinds of visas, and we're, we do not have time to explain all of those. Right. Um, and so the, the Cato Institute looked at it and said, listen, the, the chance of being murdered by um, a terrorist here in on U.S. soil uh, who has come into the country on as a a tourist on a tourist visa is about one in 3.9 million per year. So that's, that's a lot. And it's drastically different than the one in 3.64 billion chance of being um, killed by a refugee turned terrorist. But what it kind of looked at was how we could maybe restructure some of our visa program. In fact, there've been nine fatal attacks by, by known Islamist terrorists on U.S. soil since September 11th, 2001. And in those nine attacks, eight of those attackers were themselves U.S. citizens of some kind. Zero of them were refugees. Um, and in a, in a couple of cases, though, they had some of these people who were Islamist terrorists had come into our country on various kinds of visas. In fact, all of the attackers from the 9-11 attacks had come into this country on various kinds of visas. So if we're being intellectually honest, I think most of us would say, Maybe the visa process has some problems with it. Maybe there are some holes here that have to be examined so we can see how how can we keep this from happening. And so that is definitely something to to take note of. And hopefully that will be part of the research and reset process that the Trump administration is hoping for with this executive order. Now, that's talking about visas. Let's talk a little bit about the vetting process that's already in place for people who are coming into our country as official refugees. Kelly, I know you know that this process actually starts with the UN. Right. So to become a refugee, if you have fled your country for some reason, you need to apply to the United Nations Refugee Agency. Okay, so that is how you're going to get your official refugee card, so to speak, right? Yes. It starts with them. The UN will then conduct a series of interviews and screenings, which include like home country reference checks, even biological screenings like iris scans and other things, just to decide if you qualify as a refugee under one of those five headings that we talked about before. Are you actually suitable? Are you a good case for resettlement? And then they decide which country you can apply to. So there are more than 65 million refugees worldwide. About 1% of those refugees 
are actually accepted into the UN resettlement program. That's right. And out of those, uh, I think less than 1% actually come to the United States. That's right. So I have heard out of, you know, if you're going to take the total refugee population for the world and then narrow it right down to who comes into the U.S., 0.01%. Yes. We're settled into the U.S. at least last year. Okay. So that's, that's how big, which is to say not very, the United States refugee program is. Exactly. Kind of giving the worldwide perspective on that. Right. right. So after a person is deemed officially a refugee by the UN High Council on Refugees, and they begin the process, again, like Kelly said, most refugees do not have a choice where they are signed. Sometimes exceptions are made. If you already have family in a, in a different country mm-hmm. or some kind of a business connection, the UN will take that into account. But more often than not, people are just assigned to a country. So if you're assigned to the US, then from the UN, they hand you off to the US State Department. The US State Department then works with several agencies to continue this vetting process. Now, notably and kind of notoriously, this can take anywhere from 18 to 24 months. Once you've been assigned to the US, you're looking at a year and a half to two years of wait. But it can be even longer if you're from a terrorism troubled country like Syria Mm -hmm. or Iraq. Now, that amount of time is not just typical government lag. Sometimes when you're trying to get things done with the government, it takes a long time. Mm-hmm. That time frame is actually kind of intentional because what they do over time is they interview and interview and interview. They match up all that biological data that you were talking about, Kelly. They look at your interviews. They are looking for any holes in your story. And they want to know that your story about why you're fleeing the country you're fleeing from is consistent over time. So you have to remember and keep all of these details straight mm-hmm. for months, if not years, to be able to report to immigration officers all along the way to make sure that your story checks out. And there are definitely mechanisms in place, components of this vetting process that we, the average citizens, we just don't get to know about because it's a matter of national security, honestly. And so... Here's the vetting process that's in place. And this is the vetting process that has been in place for years and has led logic. I'm making a logical leap here, led to the fact that we've had zero terrorist attacks from somebody who has come into our country through the official route, starting with the UN, going through the State Department, waiting for years. You can imagine then why for somebody who's gone through this whole process, to find out, okay, I've been assigned to the US, I've got my paperwork, I've got my packet from the UN, I've done all of this stuff that the US required of me. And now I have to wait for, you know, four more months, or if you were from Syria, who knows how long you can imagine how upsetting it would be to be on that end. One quick note about the UN, a question that I got several times from people who took the time to message me with their questions and comments about the refugee issue is, why are all of these Syrians and other people from this part of the world, why are why are they not being taken in by those Middle Eastern countries that are right there? They share the same culture. They share the same language. Why would they even want to come here when they could stay there? Well, the truth is, mostly they are. Almost 90% of Syrian refugees specifically are still in the Middle East. They're spread across Turkey and Lebanon, Egypt, Jordan, and even parts of Iraq. As dangerous as it is, there are some safe areas there. And so most Syrians do stay in the region. It's costly to be a refugee. I want everyone to stop right now. Imagine your life. More importantly, imagine your bank account. Think about how much savings you have. 
If there were some kind of terrible event tomorrow in the United States and you wanted to flee, could you afford to go? And how long could you afford to exist away from your current source of income? Because that's the position these Syrians found themselves in. They weren't anticipating that their country was going to break out in civil war in 2011. The people who had money and savings and could flee, a lot of them did. A lot of them had to stop when they got to one of these countries around Syria because they just they didn't have the resources to continue traveling. I would even say that many of them don't even want to become official immigrants and try to resettle in another country. Yes. They really are hoping. Yes. For resolution in Syria, in their home country, wherever they're fleeing, you know, of course, we're talking about Syrian immigrants here, but that applies to so many different people who are fleeing their home country for whatever reason. They want to go home. They do. They they want to go home and rebuild. They want to be in their culture with their extended family. I by no means have ever heard that all these people are leaving their countries and hoping to resettle in Europe. Some take that great risk and say, yes, we will uproot and become a total nomad into a new culture where we have to re-assimilate our kids. All the things that would go along with that. Again, I try to imagine if something happened in the U.S., would I be willing to uproot and replant in Ghana? Right. Yes. In Ecuador, would what would it take for me to say, well, my kids were in education here, we had friends, I had a backyard, my plants, all the things that you think about that are home. So many people are like, even though my home may be gone, it might be bombed, I would still rather go home. Right, right. Yes. That is such an important thing to think about. In fact, one of our one of our awesome community members actually lives in Afghanistan, and she and her family are traveling in the region right now. And she saw in the airport a family who was leaving their family behind in, in this airport, and they had their UN packets, and they were getting ready to leave. And there was just you know, everyone was crying and the family was like having to push them to get on the plane so they would go, go, go. And it is an agonizing choice to make. I think that we cannot state that too lightly. It it truly is. To go back to the Middle Eastern countries, just a quick note, the Persian Gulf nations like Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, United Arab Emirates are not on that list of where there's, you know, a ton Mm -hmm. of the Syrian refugees. Frankly, it's a little complicated because those are countries that did not sign the 1951 UN Refugee Treaty. There was a 1951 Refugee Convention where a treaty was signed, ratified by 145 countries that outlined what it means to be a refugee, uh, what the rights of refugees are, legal obligations of the states that signed the treaty, those legal obligations to protect them. The U.S. signed that treaty, but Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, some of these countries, they didn't. But some of them have still taken in hundreds of thousands of Syrians. It's just that they don't call them refugees. They don't legally recognize that term. What they call them are Arab brothers and sisters in distress. So when the U.N. counts totals of where are refugees, where are Syrians landing, they don't count the people in those countries, because those countries don't count them as refugees, if that makes any sense at all. But just because we don't have, you know, like sort of accurate numbers on where, you know, how many people those uh, countries have taken in does not mean that those countries aren't taking them in. So I think that's an important point to make when it comes to why would they want to come over here and leave their culture behind? And why are those countries not taking care of those who are similar to them? The reality is, that's exactly what's happening. Those countries are taking them in and trying to accommodate this as much as possible. Now, Kelly, having gone through all of the steps of what we know 
you have to go through for vetting to come to our country. Let's talk a little bit about how that's different from what's happening in Europe, because that's another thing we hear like, Mm -hmm. well, look what happened when the refugee, the Syrian refugee crisis hit Europe. Look at, you know, there have been attacks. There has been outbreak of violence in, in those areas. Let's talk a little bit about how that's different from the U.S., Right. And I've heard that a lot, too. I'm sure you got that in your private messages from people saying, look what's happening in Europe. Don't we have a responsibility to make sure it doesn't happen here? And it is a very real fear of people. So we wanted to point out that Europe, what has happened there is going to be different than what happens here because we have an ocean that separates us from the Middle East. People cannot just walk here or cross the Mediterranean Sea, and get into our country. So in Europe, it was a situation where people could flood in, walk in, go where they wanted. They were migrating. They were, you know, just coming in, moving across the continent. There was no vetting process. There was no paperwork that people were filling out and going through this UN, going through the process like we have here in the US that takes years for people to prove that they are who they say they are, why they want to come, that they have money, that they have family, whatever the the things are that they're going to say. There's nothing like that has been happening in Europe. And it has been a problem. Absolutely. It has been a crisis for those governments to try to figure out how they're going to help people um, and yet still keep their people safe. But what we're talking about here in America is really an apples to oranges sort of comparison. Yes, yes, that's right. So one of the other questions that I have heard some, Megan, is why were so few Christian Syrian refugees admitted to our country under Obama? Yes. Because people who have a Christian sensitivity, they say, well, it seems like he was favoring Muslim refugees. Right, right. I've heard that question too. And when you look at the statistics, you're going to see, yes, fewer Christians were resettled from Syria. And that is because even before the Civil War started, um, Christians were like right around the 10% mark of the total population in Syria. So to begin with, there weren't that many um, Christians living in Syria. Because they were a religious minority, they actually tended to band together with the regime that was in power, uh, and they were part of another minority within the Muslim tradition called the Alawites. And so because they were both minorities, they kind of stuck together, as often happens in in different cultures like this. The Christians kind of lived in regime-controlled areas, and they felt really safe at the beginning of the outbreak. So from the time the war began, for the first couple of years, I'm not being accurate with terms, but in the beginning, they were like, okay, a lot of the Sunnis are fleeing, but we feel pretty good about where we are. As the war dragged on and as violence stepped up against Christians in that country in particular— Many of those Syrian Christians did begin to flee, but a lot of them went to Lebanon. Now, if you listen to my coverage from my trip, you might remember that Lebanon is a country that's roughly half Muslim and half Christian. There's already a Christian community in place there. So many of the Syrian Christians just went over the border. There are already Syriac Christian or Syrian Christian churches already established in Lebanon and And those churches really stepped up and took people in. So the fact is, you just had fewer, especially for the first few years of the Syrian civil war, you just had fewer Syrian Christians who were even applying for refugee status. So I know when you look at the numbers, you're going, hey, wait a second, why is there this discrepancy? And that kind of explains a little bit about why you see that discrepancy. It wasn't a matter of um, the administration favoring Syrian Muslims over Syrian Christians. It was just like, that's how 
the uh, that's how the cards played out for Sudan. Right, simply the numbers. Just simply mm-hmm. the numbers. Yes, exactly. So, whew, Kelly and I have gone through a lot of facts and figures about the refugee part of this executive order. We've tried to deliver facts. We've tried to limit our own commentary, but we thought we'd open it up to some commentary from people who have had a lot more experience in government policy than we have. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Now, I've talked to a Democrat. I've talked to a Republican. Some of what you hear might make you angry, and that's okay. We need to be able to listen to things that we don't agree with and just say, well, I don't agree with that. <laughs> and think about why we don't. Um, some of the things that you hear um, might make you so excited, like fist bump the air. And that's great, too. You may totally agree with some of this. The first woman I talked to is a woman named Amy Pope. Amy was the deputy assistant to the president for Homeland Security under President Obama. I took some of the questions that you awesomes had, and I asked Amy, and here is my interview with her. Hi, Amy. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us about these incredibly important issues today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. If you could just kind of give us a sense of your your own personal background and history in, in Washington. Okay. Um, I most recently served as President Obama's Deputy Homeland Security Advisor on the National Security Council staff. And so my primary job there was um, looking at a range of threats that might affect the United States and figuring out how we best mitigate those threats, how we prepare for them, and then how we respond to them when something bad happens. So it really ran the gamut from Zika and Ebola to foreign fighters to migration and refugees um, to hurricane response. It was a very broad portfolio. Before that, I worked on um, as the head of the transborder security group. And so um, that was a job focused primarily on refugees and vetting and migration, uh, maritime and aviation security, a range of cross-border threats is basically how I'd summarize it. That is a lot. You are definitely the perfect person to field some of these questions. And first question I wanted to ask you, one thing that we're hearing a lot is that the executive order is in a lot of ways similar to President Obama's temporary ban on Iraqi refugees coming into the country back in 2011. I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about in what ways this might be similar and what some of the differences would be. So it's it's not similar at all. Um, that's a myth. Okay. Um, and so... I can tell you what happened in 2011, and I can tell you what this is. In 2011, there was specific information about vulnerabilities in the SIV and refugee admissions program involving Iraqis. As a result of that, we um, took another look at all of the Iraqi admissions, so everybody who was coming in through those programs. We ran them through enhanced screening. We brought on additional databases um, that was coming in from our warfighters, basically, overseas, so that we could match the biometrics, the fingerprints, um, for example, the names against the records that we had. And that process slowed down the admission of Iraqis because everybody who was in the pipeline had to be run through um, again through these enhanced databases. But it was never a ban. Okay. Um, and it was never... It was certainly not more than this particular group of people. And then it this cuts the refugee program by more than a half. So President Obama had told Congress that the plan was to admit 110,000 refugees this year. And that's a high number, but it's in response to the unprecedented crisis we're seeing around the world. The 
current president has decided that we're going to cut emissions to 50,000 maximum. And the real question is whether or not he'll even meet 50,000 because of this four-month delay. Um, it just won't leave a lot of time to bring in people through the pipeline. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, you mentioned this, and, and a lot of people have been talking about the fact that there was a significant uptick in the number of refugees who came into the country, particularly towards the end of the Obama administration 2015-2016 range. Um, as somebody who was working in this specific yeah. part of um, the administration, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, and you kind of alluded to it, but what your thoughts are on why there was such an uptick. Um, the number of displaced people is unprecedented. And this is something that President Obama demonstrated quite a bit of leadership on. He felt that we had a responsibility to respond to the crisis. But he also he also responded by engaging other countries and asking other countries to admit the number of refugees that they were resettling. So um, he, he galvanized an important community of nations as part of UN General Assembly and got people to um, commit to resettling more and more refugees. And that's just a result of what's happening in the world. We're seeing very high numbers. It's it's not just Syrians, it's folks from Afghanistan, it's folks from Africa. It's around the world we're seeing very, very high numbers of displaced people. Okay. All right. Again, Amy, thank you so much. This is such a, a busy week and, and I know a busy time for you. Thank you so much for taking some time to help us kind of sort through and muddle through these conversations in a way that provides some clarity. So appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Not only did you get to talk to Amy, I know Megan, but you got to talk to somebody from the George W. Bush administration. That's right. right? That's right. Mindy Tucker Fletcher. Yes. is a Republican. She was Bush's campaign press secretary and then the director of communications at the DOJ or the Department of Justice during September 11th. So let's listen to what she had to say to your questions. Hi, Mindy. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on Sort of Awesome and help us figure out some of what is going on with the executive order as it pertains to refugees right now. Thanks. I'm so glad to be with you. Um, if you could just kind of start a little bit of background for yourself when you came on the political scene in the United States and kind of what your um, experience has been so we get a little bit of a sense of the work that you've done with American politics so far. Sure. Straight out of college, I went to work on Capitol Hill and I worked for a congressman there, Congressman Sam Johnson, for about six years. And then in 1998, I went to work for then Governor George W. Bush in Texas, okay. uh, which is my home state, went back home and went to work for him. And that quickly went from his reelect campaign to a presidential campaign where I was also his press secretary for the 2000 presidential campaign. I went back to D.C. and I became the spokesperson for the United States Department of Justice. And I was the first woman to have that job. Which oh, kind wow. Of in September of that year, the attacks of 9-11 happened. Oh, and wow. so I oversaw not only from the Justice Department perspective, but also the FBI, I oversaw all of the communications related to the law enforcement portion of dealing with the attacks, the terrorist attacks from September 11th. 
Wow. Well, so clearly your ties with the Republican Party in our country run deep. And like you said, you've seen a little bit of everything kind of happen uh, in your time in politics. Um, I guess one of the main questions, one of the questions that we have heard from our listeners that they're wondering about this situation, again, as it pertains to the um, executive order dealing with immigration and refugees, is this. Um, We know when we look at the, uh, when we look at the statistics, when we look at the numbers that to this point, no terrorist attack has happened in the United States that was perpetrated by somebody who was here through the official refugee program. And so if we haven't had any terrorist attacks from refugees to this point, why would we need to look at the vetting process as it is right now? Sure, sure. I think once you're inside um, the government and you are someone who's responsible for protecting the country, um, meaning something happens, it comes down squarely on your shoulders. You realize that you have to do whatever you need to do on a daily basis to make sure that attacks don't happen. Um, And every time you figure out what they've done before, they're already doing something else. So once they flew the planes into the towers, they weren't going to do that again. And so we made, we made all these changes around the way we fly and you can't get on a plane with this or that mm-hmm. or that sharp object, but it was all really geared toward what already happened. And they are likely not going to fly planes into buildings again because they've already done that and everybody's geared around that now. Mm-hmm. And so you're mm-hmm. in this constant sort of, what have I not thought about? What are they planning that we have not planned for? Right. Um, and so there's a different mindset that comes with that, especially when you're actually in the office and it's on your, it's on your shoulders. And I remember president Bush a lot, people would criticize him and he would say, I don't care what anyone says at the end of the day, I have to protect the country. So I have to do what I need to do. Right. And there, there is an element of like, it's really hard to understand that burden of responsibility unless you're the one sitting in that seat. So that's sort of the first perspective builder I would give you. Um, okay. Secondly, I think, There haven't been any attacks perpetrated by refugees, Um, but you just don't ever know when the other side is going to use that funnel or that that trail to bring someone in. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can't assume just because there haven't been that there won't be. That's probably the mindset that they're in is just thinking through, like, what have I not thought about? What if they do use this? They do use the refugees as a way to get someone in here who's going to do something horrible you know, how, how do we protect against that? How we really, we really set up a system so that it protects America? Right. And so, too, I think just to add on to that question, um, and I know you certainly cannot and wouldn't try to speak for the entire Republican Party, but um, <laughs> as somebody who's coming from that perspective and, and you're thinking, okay, I, I know that sense of responsibility. I've been really close to that. What do you, just like on a personal level, hope comes from this pushing of pause on the refugee program? What, what to you would be the ultimate great outcome of this executive order? That's a great question. Um, I'm very, personally, I'm very conflicted because um, as a Christian, mm-hmm. uh, which is something that's really important to me in my life, I, you know, I know that we're supposed to welcome the foreigner. Mm-hmm. It's very clear how we're supposed to respond in this situation. Um, and so marrying that up with also knowing that, you know, we, we need to protect people. Um, uh, you know, I think at the end of the day, there's got to be a way 
to help people that need help. I mean, we, nobody, nobody who looks at the situation in Syria or anywhere else would say people left there to right. deal with that. Nobody yeah. with a heart would look right. at that situation and think that that is okay. So there's got to be a way to open to open our arms to the people that need help and figure out how to help them because we are a compassionate nation, but also put the protections in place that allow us to feel safe here. Um, there's got to be a way to meet both of those imperatives. Exactly, exactly. Gosh, Mindy, thank you yeah. so much. This has been so helpful and so clarifying. And I really appreciate you taking the time to come on Sort of Awesome and, and help us understand a little bit better what's going on. Sure. Glad I could be a part of it. Thanks. So we got a chance to hear from women who work in government policy, and they understand a lot of the components and aspects of government policy that are at play here. But you know what? This affects us on personal levels, too. In fact, Kelly, you got to talk to somebody who has a very personal invested interest in her reaction and response to this executive order. Right. I'm guessing that a lot of you awesomes have heard from personal stories on Facebook, all the things. We took it like one step further. We're not only talking to an American. We are going to now hear from a friend of ours, Sarah Kate Levy, who is an American Jewish woman living in Los Angeles. So one of the things that I have sometimes heard is people think, well, American Jews must be happy about this executive order or at least be okay with it because they should know more than anyone what it's like to have Muslims trying to do you harm because of their possible association with the country of Israel, all those things. But when I talked to her, I found that actually the opposite is true. Sarah Kate Levy is an American Jew living in Los Angeles. She practices Reformed Judaism, which is a form of Judaism that emphasizes the evolving nature of the religion and pays particular attention to its ethical teachings instead of its ceremonial traditions. I first met Sarah when she was a guest on Laura's podcast, Smartest Person in the Room, on her religion series, where she talked about the identity of being a Jew in America today, with what I now know is her classic no-holds-barred personality. So Sarah, you are a Reformed Jew living in Los Angeles. Of course, we don't expect you to speak for the entire Jewish community in America, but you come at this with two viewpoints. You know, you understand what it's like because of Israel, to have a security risk of people who really do want to harm your people because of beliefs. You also understand what it is to be a person of ethics and faith and how to care for people. So I'd just love to hear what you think about this executive order. What has been your reaction? So my first response is just as an American that this travel ban just... I, as an American, it goes against everything I believe and that I was taught in school about how our country works. As a Jew... I am emotionally very, very concerned about it because we are within living history of this being done to the Jews. My father-in-law is a Holocaust survivor with a tattoo on his arm, and he was a teenager who lived through that horror. We pushed people away in World War II who came here and tried to hide from the German regime, and they went home and were murdered. And when I think about refugees being turned away from our shores, what are they being sent back to? We have seen the pictures of Syria. We know what's happening there. These cities don't even exist anymore. The regime is hunting people down. And I feel that as an American Jew, because I, I have an emotional connection to people who are under attack for their beliefs. I feel that what we are doing to people coming in 
will also be reflected on what we do to people who already live here. Because if we cannot treat all of humanity the way we would expect to treat each other, I mean, I hate to use the word slippery slope because that is just always used by the conservative side of politics, and I'm not a conservative, clearly. But I think it is a slippery slope, and I think that the viewpoint that is saying refugees are a danger to our way of life and Muslims are a danger to our way of life is the same part of our population that is looking to American Muslims and calling them a danger and looking to American Jews and calling us a danger. So I'm just, I'm up in arms. (laughs) You know, at the protests over the weekend, I saw in pictures, a lot of people wearing yarmulkes. Right. And people, to some degree, I saw some friends express surprise at that again, because they would think, oh, well, you know, the Muslims and Jews are enemies. I'm sure that the the Jewish population in America is happy to keep the Muslims out. But that has not proven the case. In fact, I think it's just the opposite. Okay. There is this idea in the larger culture that Jews are automatically the enemy of Muslims. I am stunned by this idea. Basically, we start we start with the same stories. I mean, we have the same Abraham. Right, we are right. the the tension between the Jews and the Muslims is a tiny little point of tension that is in a tiny little point of the Middle East. But the larger religious anxiety doesn't play itself out into modern times. It certainly doesn't play itself out into America. I mean, in America, rabbis sit on panels with imams all the time. The mosque that got burned down in Texas last week, the first thing that happened is the rabbi handed the imam the keys to the synagogue. So not only do I not think that there is a religious antipathy between these two groups, but I also feel that because within 70 years, Jews were hunted and murdered en masse because of religious hate, we can feel the fear that Muslim Americans feel right now. And it is very, it's in our bones. Every time somebody posts something about if if there's a Muslim list, we will join the list. I go, yeah, we will join the list. And my husband goes, yes, we will join the list. And we will put our children on that list because we stand with anyone who's being persecuted for religious rights. Right. You're akin to that. I'm into that. And I would think that that would be something that all people from a faith-based system in this country would feel. I would think that. Mormons would feel that because Mormons have been persecuted and Catholics should feel that because Catholics have been persecuted and the evangelical right who is always saying we're being persecuted. They should also be standing with Muslims. (laughs) Anyone who's ever screamed you're all coming after us should stand with anybody who is under attack. Right. But this, like you said, it's a slippery slope. I think when it comes to fear, you're saying, no, this can't happen because of the other things that could happen. And for, like you said, it hasn't been that long since the Holocaust. And there yeah. were refugees that were trying to get to America. And at the time, there were people who said, it is too scary to let them in. It is too much of a security risk. It risks pulling us into a war, you know, possibly before we'd enter the war, for all the different reasons. And many all of the, the same reasons we're hearing today. So it's very palpable, I think, especially for the Jewish community who who knows that it's not just theory, it can happen. Yeah. And it's not even just that, like my my connection to the Holocaust is so new in history. But if you look even in my lifetime, 
We saw what happened in Rwanda when people went after each other. We saw what happened in Yugoslavia when people went after each other. It's not contained to one group of people. And this idea we had that America is insulated from that because we are Americans, we are seeing that that is not true. And that might be the most frightening thing for Jews in America who felt like, okay, we're in this liberal society and we're safe here. And I'm sure it feels the same way for Muslims in America. We're in this liberal society and we're safe here. We're not. What is happening to our government right now is showing us that, you know what, this could all blow up at any moment. We are not the shining city on the hill and we are not protected. And I will say, like in all seriousness, I'm the crazy drama liberal person in our household. And my husband, who's also very liberal, is much more even keeled. And it makes me crazy because he won't get as crazy as I am. But we were driving home from a weekend in Big Bear and he turned to me and said, I figured out how we could retrofit the basement and hide people. And he was really thinking that. So we're in that moment where American Jews are thinking, okay, people didn't necessarily hide us, but we will hide them. Right. I mean, that's frightening. That's yeah. frightening to live in America and have that thought. Right. Not only frightening, like for yourself, but just frightening to think that we could, we could go there. Because I think what you said is true. You know, we, we want to believe that we're better than this. In fact, I saw some things on Twitter this last week, and I even retweeted one of them. And it said, you know, this is not who we are. And I right. had a friend correct me and she said, it's not who we want to be, but it is kind of who we are. Yeah. You know, like when you look at our history, so we just being trying to ride that right line a little carefully, you know, like we can't deny we have not been, we do not have a perfect pass, you know, the shining city on the hill sort of thing, but we, we want to be better. And we've always believed that we want to be better. Right. Right. All right. Thank you so much. Okay. Have a great day. All right. Bye. Bye. Well, One of the number one questions that I was presented with over and over when the awesomes were reaching out to me and asking questions was, what can I do? Some people said, I don't really have money to give to organizations. What can I do? Other people said, I I live in a, a state where I feel like my government representatives aren't even listening to me. So what can I do? All of us are wondering if we do have compassion for people who have fled their homes for very real, very life-threatening reasons. What can we do just like regular people in our homes and in our communities? What can we do? So one person came to mind that I knew I wanted to reach out to. I was so thankful that she took the time to come on Sword of Awesome and talk about this. You're going to hear from a woman named Emily who lives in Texas. She and her church have kind of partnered together to support Syrian families who are resettling into their community. And, um, I just, I'm going to let Emily speak for herself and tell her amazing story, inspiring story of how partnering with and supporting and getting to know a Syrian family has brought so much change to her own life. Well, hi, Emily. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about your work, your hands-on work with a Syrian refugee family in your community. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. I was Wondering if you could give us just a little bit of background information about who you are, a little bit of bio, just help us to know who you are and kind of what stage of life you're in. Sure. So my name's Emily. My family and I live um, here in the Dallas area in Texas, and I work part-time and am also a full-time mom. I have a a two- and four-year-old little boy, both boys, and um, so I stay home with them and then also work, and so that's kind of my 
life around here? Yeah, busy lady, like so many of our awesomes who are listening, very busy. But at the same time, you have, the reason that you and I even connected in the first place is because you help a Syrian woman named Khalud, who lives in your community, run her sewing business. I ordered a couple of blankets uh, for Christmas gifts over the holidays. And as this refugee discussion came up again, you collude her work, her family, and the way your family has kind of gotten involved with her family came to mind. So if you could just tell us a little bit about how that even came about in your life. So um, our church has been active with the Syrian refugee crisis um, kind of on different fronts. We also have adopted a couple of Syrian refugee families here in the Dallas area through a wonderful organization called Gateway of Grace. Okay. They're here in the Dallas area, but there are similar organizations, um, you know, throughout the United States that help pair um, either churches or organizations or groups of people with a newly resettled refugee family. Basically what happens when these refugees arrive in the United States, they have three months of support um, from the State Department and from an official refugee resettlement organization. And after that, their support ends. And as you can imagine, it takes more than three months to get back on your feet in a new country. The vast majority of the time, these families arrive without any English. Mm-hmm. And so their hurdles that they have ahead of them are, you know, fairly monstrous. Yeah. So Gateway of Grace and similar organizations um, pair these families with groups of people who want to help, you know, pick up where that three months leaves off and help them like really get acclimated to life here and, and just form community and make friendships and help them get back on their feet. And so uh, we had adopted a, a Syrian refugee family just over a year ago, and then um, Khalid's family arrived in July. Khalid's family in particular was an, a, a little bit of a unique case in that they have six children, and mm-hmm. so it's a large family. Yes. And their home was bombed now almost five years ago. And so they were among some of the first refugees to get out of to get out of Syria. And the father, I mean, tells the story like he still doesn't know how he managed to get his whole family out alive. So they spent um, over four years in Jordan. Um, either in a refugee camp or just outside a refugee camp. And so when I say what makes them unique, that's a long time to be displaced without um, being settled anywhere. And so their six children were not in school for that time. Mm -hmm. And so in addition to not understanding a single word um, that the teachers are saying, they've never been in school before. And with the the lack of English and um, Clude has some health problems. Um, She was actually severely burned in the bombing of their home. Mm. And so um, she, um, yeah, just has some health, some has some health issues, particularly she has a leg that was burned particularly badly. Mm. Um, and so for a lot of reasons, they had, you know, even more obstacles than some families that are coming here. And so it was a very intensive uh, time whenever they arrived here, because we just had about a month and a half to get them ready for school. And so that oh, was wow. like, Everything from vaccines to, you know, uniforms and everything you can possibly imagine. Yeah. Um, so anyway, all that to say, we kind of dove right in and the rest is history. <laughs> so Kalu, despite having some health problems and despite 
going through, you know, the just the various traumas that you just kind of laid out. She went ahead and taught herself to sew. Did some ladies in the church kind of come alongside to help her to learn those skills? Yeah. So Kalud learned to sew actually in Jordan from um, our friends that we support that are doing some mission work there in Jordan. And so she learned how to sew there. Okay. And so they arrived here and there was, you know, a lot of needs that needed to be met. It was kind of like a triage situation and sewing was not at the forefront of any of that. Right. But then after it didn't take but a few weeks for kind of the dust to settle, you know, doctor's appointments and school enrollment and everything that every time anyone on our team went. So it's myself, but we have at least a dozen um, people from our church that are equally involved. And so anytime one of us went to visit, she would say through Google Translate, you know, so we relied exclusively on Google Translate, um, which I would ballpark it at maybe 60% accurate. (laughs) (laughs) Right, Um, yes. And so all that to say, her phone, whenever she would type it in, she would turn it to us and it would constantly say, I want to sell my sewing. This was the word. This was the phrase that we kept seeing. I want to sell my selling. Then someone else goes and they're talking about something unrelated. And then all of a sudden they look at the phone and it says, I want to sell my selling. So a couple other ladies on our team and I kind of put our heads together. We we found a translator and met with her and kind of talked through this idea. um, That way she could understand better having a translator, not relying on Google Translate, you know, here's an idea, you could sew from your home, we would put together a website. And, you know, you would choose the products, but we would give you some guidance on, you know, what fabrics might be marketable here. um, What size, you know, just kind of we, we kind of, you know, had the sense of what we thought we could sell, and she had the skills to do it. Right. And so we kind of tried to put our heads together and, and capitalize on, you know, what she wanted to do. It was definitely where her heart was, what she wanted to do. She wanted to help support her family financially. And so, yeah, so that's kind of how it started. We had that conversation, and then one thing led to another. And um, a few weeks later, we launched her home sewing shop website, which is called Kalud Sews. Yes. That's right. And the I'll never forget when I went over and showed her her website for the first time. Um, she had her neighbor, who's an Iraqi refugee, uh-huh. uh, over with her, and so they speak Arabic, and yes. they were both sitting there together. And I showed her um, my phone that had the website pulled up on it, and she immediately, you know, pointed and traced her finger over the letters of her name, oh, yes. which she recognized. Yes. And she said to her friend, Me Isme, which is, this is my name. Yes. Um, so it was just such a cool moment to see her, you know, see for the first time that, you know, she's a business owner in yeah. America. I know. It's um, amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so then the rest of the fall was a blur because um, yeah. I think there's a lot of people who really ache for what's happening in Syria, but don't really know how to help. Yes. Um. And so once we started to get the word out about here's one way that you could help one family. Yes, that's and, right. And um, so she had close to 100 orders from October until Christmas. That's amazing. I love it. Um, that's how I found the website. <laughs> one of our awesomes in our Hangout community posted a link to her shop. And I was just like, oh, yes, definitely. Yeah. I love that. So it was really cool. And so many of the orders came in with a note of support for her. You know, please tell Kalud how you know happy we're, you know, we are to have her here. 
um, how we wish her well, how we're so, you know, proud of her bravery. I mean, it was so great to get to, you know, through Google Translate, <laughs> pass along, you know, those messages to her. And I think the gist of the message was received. And then her husband actually lost his job during that time. He was working at a cold storage warehouse um, for like an ice cream manufacturer. Mm -hmm. And once the weather cooled off, um, he was part of a layoff mm -hmm. unrelated to his work ethic. Mm -hmm. um, just demand slowed and he lost his job. And so her sewing was able to um, cover their November bills, which they wouldn't have been able to, to cover otherwise. So it was it was really worthwhile and, and really great to see just that, you know, agency that she was able to have um, again, which had been taken from her, the uprooting of her life and to have that back and to have that self-esteem and self-confidence and her husband's so supportive of her. It's such a powerful story. Just one last quick thing before I let you go. Something that I've heard over and over from the people in our community is they don't know what's going to happen with government policy. Some might be for it, some might be against it, but they want to help people experiencing a refugee situation. What encouragement, just general encouragement, would you give to Americans who are kind of floundering and flailing and looking for a way to be personally involved the way your family and your church community has gotten involved? Yeah, I think, I guess my advice in short would be, you know, just to do it. Yes. <laughs> that, yeah. you know, just kind of step up, step off the cliff, even if you, if you aren't sure what it's going to look like. Um, you know, I mentioned there are, anyone can Google, you know, refugee resettlement help um, and connect with like World, World Relief is one example. There's many organizations that operate like Gateway of Grace um, and can connect people like us with refugees that have arrived and offer them support. And I guess, yeah, my advice would be to track one down and get a group of people and adopt a, a refugee family. Cause you know, regardless of what happens with um, the number that are coming in, there are those here. There are people that are here already That's right. um, and they need help and they need ongoing help and the more help, the merrier. And then I think specifically, especially, so, you know, we're a young family, we're busy, we've got young kids. Um, it turns out our kids have been the hugest assets uh, with ministering to refugee families because, you know what, refugee families have a whole lot of children. That's true. That's right. And cultural barriers are awkward for adults, but they're not awkward for kids. So true. And when you're in a room with someone who doesn't speak your language and, but your kids are playing together, like what more needs to be said? You know, it just, it just breaks down language barriers. It breaks down cultural barriers. They, we love, I love their kids like they're my own and they love our kids like they're theirs. And yeah. um, I think, I don't know what my worldview really would have been if you had asked me a year ago, you know, what do you, what do you feel about Syrian refugees coming here? Right. Um, maybe it would have been a complicated issue. Then I met them. Yes. And I got to tell you, it's not complicated. Um, it's not a complicated issue for anymore. Um, it's a blessing to have them here and it's a blessing to spend time with them. And I want to know more. We now hang out with their Iraqi neighbors and have kind of adopted them as well because I want to be around more people like that. They're amazing people. They're cooler than my American friends. <laughs> um, and I, I want, <laughs> I want, you know, I want that. I want that for me. I want that for my kids. Um, and so anyway, it's, I think just like many issues that you think about when you think about an issue, you think about a people group, uh, you know, maybe you, you think of Muslim, you think of refugee, 
Um, now I think of Kalud and I think of Noor and I think of Mohanad. You know, they're not a group anymore. It's That's a person. Right. Yes. And I don't, you don't have to ask me twice how I feel about those people. That is so powerful. Thank you, Emily, for sharing your story and for giving us just a glimpse into Kalud's story as well. I so appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's a privilege to get to talk about them. They're amazing. Again, I'm just so thankful that Emily took the time to tell that story. It's so inspiring. And I know it's going to leave all of us with this reminder that, yes, we should all use the privilege. Those of us in the U.S., we should use the privilege that we have as citizens. But government policy aside, all of us who are co-humaning on this planet together in the midst of the biggest refugee crisis since World War II, we have a responsibility as humans to take action in whatever ways that we can. So this has been a lot, Kelly. <laughs> I'm, it sure, has been. I'm sure people have a lot of opinions and a lot of response they want to share with us. So as we close, let's take a moment to remind everybody where you can find us to continue this conversation all around the web. Kelly? Well, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Kelly at Lovewell and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Lovewell blog. But you can also contact us at the show, right? That's right. So we have a new Twitter account. People who are on Twitter are tweeps. Um, the show is at sort of awesome pod. So that would be a good place to contact if you want to contact us in a more general sense. Contact us at there. That's right. We're so excited to be on Twitter now. That's right. Yeah. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at sort of awesome Meg. The show is also on Instagram at sort of awesome show. You can find us anytime on Facebook at facebook.com slash sort of awesome. Also, we had extra special help with production this week from Laura Tremaine. Jana Chapman-Gates, and Jen Johnson. Thank you, ladies, so much for your help. Thank you to all of the awesomes who sent in your questions and comments. Thank you so much for trusting me with that. Your insights help build this episode more than you can know. Finally, we have a ton of links and resources that we used in preparing for this week's episode. Too many to mention here. We will put them all into the show notes of this episode, as well as this week's newsletter, which you can sign up for very easily at our website, sortaawesomeshow.com. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see y'all next time. Sorta Awesome was created by me, Megan Teets, and is produced each week in collaboration with Kelly Gordon, Rebecca Hoffer, and Laura Tremaine. Visit us on the web at sortaawesomeshow.com, where you can sign up for the show's newsletter, connect with the Sorta Awesome community, and find show notes for each episode of Sorta Awesome. Music is provided by the band Prager. Find out more at pragermusic.com. We'll meet you back here next time as we discover, explore, and discuss all the things that make life sorta amazingly awesome. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.